Hey, good morning, church. So glad to have you all with us here today, especially if you're visiting with us. I see some newer faces out there. We're so glad that you're with us today, and I hope, you, I hope this feels like home to you, and you're welcome back any chance that you get. We are currently going through a series called The Lord, The Lord. And so if you are following along in your Bibles or in the Bible app, we're, we are in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. That's our main focus passage for this series. If you do follow along in the Bible app, again, just a reminder, um, the YouVersion Bible app, you can click the little more icon in the bottom right, and then click events in that menu, and you can find and follow along with Tulip Street Christian Church and see all the notes and references and everything that way. But during this series, we're trying to answer, you know, just the, the, the simple, small question of who is God and what is he like? You know, just something foundational to who we are as a people, right? And if we get this wrong, everything else will be wrong. So we've got to get this right. And where better to answer this question about who God is and what is he like than to find out what God tells us about himself. So in this series, in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, we see these characteristics of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And these characteristics, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger. That was an f- interesting one last week, the, the long nose. Uh, full of loyal love, full of truth, forgiving, and just. These characteristics, this is the roadmap. So if you're following along, we are right smack in the middle of it. With number four, full of loyal love. So if you would, please read this aloud with me. This is Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. I love what it says in verse 8. We haven't talked about that yet. But Moses immediately knelt down to the ground and worshiped when he heard that. It's this amazing, amazing scene. But today we're focusing on the fact that God is abounding in loyal love. It's overflowing. He is full of it, full to overflowing. You can't come into contact with this God and not experience his loyal love. So as we've been doing, and I'm no Hebrew scholar, but I think it's important to go back to the original languages and see what those words are and how they are translated. And so the word for today is the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed. Everybody say that with me. Chesed. All right, chesed. You got to kind of clear the throat with it. It's kind of that, that thing. Chesed. Um, a lot of times you might see it H-E-S-E-D, chesed. Other times it might be spelled C-H-E-S-D. But uh, we Americans tend to say chesed, if that's the case. So uh, one of the Bible scholars I follow, Tim Mackey, who's kind of the head of Bible Project, if you're familiar with those resources, 
He likes to transliterate it into English as K-H-E-S-E-D because it gets that chesed in it. This word chesed is used almost 250 times throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Almost half of those are in the Psalms, which is fascinating to me. We'll get to that in just a little bit. But uh, it's a very difficult word to translate into any other language because it's not so much a word as it is a concept or an idea. It's one of those things where it's hard to define, but when you experience it, you know. When you see it, you know what it is. That's chesed. And um, Bible Project, Tim Mackey, like I said, he translates it as loyal love. But if you look through different translations of the Bible, you can tell this is a challenging word to translate. For instance, you might have just the word love or unfailing love in the New Living Translation, or the English Standard might say steadfast love. The old King James Version, they simply translate it as goodness. The New American Standard would translate it by mashing two words together, loving kindness. Uh, The Christian Standard Bible, which is the one uh, I've been using lately, says faithful love. So as you're reading it, it's like, okay, it can be translated as love, but it's, th- there's more to it. There's more to this idea of love. Because we don't know how to use the word love, if we're honest, right? You know, I love pizza. I love tacos. I love my dog. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love Star Wars. I lo- Do I love all those things equally? No. It goes, you know, God and Jesus, all this stuff. You know, wife, kids, Star Wars, everything else. Right? Maybe pizza's up there too. But we don't know how to use the word. We use the word love for everything. And if you're familiar with especially the writings of C.S. Lewis, he has an entire book on this called The Four Loves. He talks about the Greek words for love. We're not going to get into that today. But Hebrew also has multiple words for love. And this is one of them. And it has a very interesting kind of meaning to it because it incorporates All these different ideas and concepts. The concepts of love and kindness and goodness, favor, generosity, loyalty, promise keeping, commitment. We might use the churchy word covenant love. Faithful love, loyal love. A love that sticks with it. A love that doesn't go away no matter what. So we're going to look at what that love uh, entails today. And it reminds me of a diamond. Now, uh, Josh talked about where he went to college. I went to college in Arkansas, not too far from Tennessee. Of course, he went on the opposite end of Tennessee from where I was. But I went to college at Harding University down in Arkansas. And anybody who has experience with a Bible college of any kind, knows that a lot of people get engaged when they're at one of those colleges. And during our younger years there, we'd look around and see all these girls. Oh, they just got engaged. And here they are in the auditorium where we had chapel, yes, every day. The lighting in there, for some reason, just made those diamonds just pop. I don't know. So we'd be like sitting there trying to listen to a chapel speaker or something, but we're looking around at all these girls newly engaged, like looking at their rings. We're like, come on, it's just a ring. Get over it. Until I 
proposed to Caitlin. We got engaged over Thanksgiving break. And then next time we're in chapel in that very auditorium, she's like, oh. (laughs) There was just something about the lighting in that room that just made those diamonds just absolutely spectacular. Every angle at which you view it, it's something, it's different. It changes and it's beautiful every time. The ancient rabbis would talk about turning the diamond. Turning the diamond. It, it, It doesn't change the idea or the concept, but it changes the way you see it. And it's something good and beautiful and true, just at a different angle, different reflection, different glimpse of the beauty that's contained within. And so today we're going to turn that diamond a little bit on this word chesed. Um, so let's hear what other people have said about it. Chesed. Uh, scholar and preacher John Oswalt says chesed is a completely undeserved kindness or generosity. A completely undeserved kindness or generosity. And this idea, this type of love is not exclusive to God. It is something that we experience within community as well, between our relationships with one another. If somebody has done something out of the blue and shown you kindness and generosity, that is the type of love we're talking about. Uh, Scholar Daryl L. Bach says this, he says, Chesed is wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God. Love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty. In short, acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. I love that idea. It's, It's action. Chesed is not just a feeling It's more than a feeling. Thank you, Boston. It's more than a feeling. And, man, I tell you, I've had these classic rock songs stuck in my head when I've been doing this. I titled the lesson, I Want to Know What Love Is, because I couldn't get that foreigner song out of my head as I'm I'm listening, as I'm researching this. So we're going to try to find out what love is. And this is a love that acts. It's a love that moves on behalf of someone else. And it goes above and beyond the requirements of duty. You know, it's one thing as a husband and wife to say, I love you, honey, but if you never show it, is it really love? Or it's another thing to be maybe employed at a hospital or nursing home or something to show that kind of care, but it's your job. You're not doing it out of the goodness of your heart. You're doing it for a paycheck. Maybe you are doing it out of the goodness of your heart. I'm not judging, but you do get paid to do that. But this kind of love is, I don't care what it costs me, I'm going to help you above and beyond the call of duty. Dr. Will Kynes says this, he says, Chesed is never merely an abstract feeling of goodwill, but always entails practical action on behalf of another. See, because I think we need a solid Biblical definition of love. I think we need to know what we're talking about here. Because if we're going to know who God is and what God is like, we are told, aren't we, that God is love. John, 1 John chapter 4. So if God is love, if God is the 
corporation of everything we've talked about so far, then what does that actually look like? What is a good, solid, biblical definition of love? So let's just kind of take a glimpse throughout the Hebrew scriptures, kind of from beginning to end a little bit. Here's some examples of this kind of love that we're talking about. And I want to start in Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32 sees the story of Jacob. Now, Jacob was a scoundrel. We, we might even call him a scumbag at times. He betrayed his own brother. He tricked his own ailing and, and old father. He took the money and ran. And God blessed him anyway. It's an incredible story because Jacob didn't do anything to deserve it. And it took him a long time to get to that realization. And in Genesis chapter 32, we see Jacob who is going back home for the first time in decades, trying to reconcile with his brother Esau. And he's terrified of what might happen, but he's putting his trust in the God who has been with him every step of the way. In fact, he acknowledges here that I am unworthy. He's talking to God here. I'm unworthy of all the kindness. That's that word chesed. That's hard to define and translate. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness that you have shown your servant. So this tells us that love is not about our worth or our worthiness. There's nothing we have to do to earn it. There's nothing we have to do to deserve it. It just is. God loves us. God shows us that kind of kindness and mercy and love, often despite ourselves. It's nothing that we have to earn. It's not about our own worthiness. Fast forwarding a little bit <laughs> into the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, we see kind of the story continues. They've left Mount Sinai, where they've been given the commands, and they're traveling toward the promised land. In chapter 14, they come right up to the boundary of the promised land, and they send in the 12 spies. Maybe you're familiar with that one. They send in the spies to scout out the land and come back and report. Well, they do. And they're all like, this, land, this place is awesome. It's got everything we need. It's got the, the best agriculture. It's got the best farming and, and mining and resources that we could ever possibly imagine but there's no way on God's green earth that we're getting this place. It's already inhabited, and the people there make us look like grasshoppers. They're the varsity squad. We're the junior high football team. We're going to get demolished if we even attempt this. But there's two guys who are like, no, we got God on our side. We can do this. Well, who do the Israelites listen to? <laughs> the ten instead of the two. And so God punishes them. He says, you're going to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But that was his lenient punishment. He wanted to just wipe them all out and start over with Moses. And Moses was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> so he has this, this conversation with God. And he says this, please pardon the iniquity of this people. Oh, God bless you, Moses, for having to put up with these folks. In keeping, he says, with your, with the greatness of your faithful love. That's that word, chesed. Just as you have forgiven them from Egypt to now. Let's keep going. There's no limits to your love, is there, God? And this shows us that love, this type of love, is a willingness to show undeserved mercy and forgiveness. 
It's not just all about kindness and blessing, but it can also be about mercy and forgiveness. Showing forgiveness for the unthinkable. And we'll get to more of that in a a couple weeks when we talk about the forgiveness of God. But Moses points out, it's all about you, God. It's about your character. Here's another one between, uh, between people. Ruth and Naomi. If you're familiar with the story of Ruth, it's a beautiful love story tacked on right at the end of the most disastrous of times and the most chaotic of times throughout the book of Judges. The book of Judges is full of chaos and war and bloodshed and dismemberment, and I'll stop there. But the book of Ruth is a beautiful story of love. Ruth, who has lost her husband, talks to her mother-in-law, who has lost her own husband and her two sons. And she says this. Ruth says to Naomi, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. This commitment that Ruth makes to Naomi is called, later on in the story, a great show of chesed, a great show of loyal love to, a pers- to another person. So love is a commitment or devotion to another based on one's own character. There was, Ruth wasn't getting anything out of it by uh, committing herself to be with Naomi. She wasn't, there wasn't anything to be gained from it. It's just that's who she was. She knew there was a situation that they were better off together. And so she makes this covenant with Naomi. I'm going with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be for you no matter what. I love this verse from Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah says this. He says, though the mountains move and the hills shake, my love will not be removed from you. That's the word. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says your compassionate Lord. This love is eternal. This love is not conditional. It's not fickle. I love that word, fickle. It's not wishy-washy. It's not here one day and gone the other. It's not like those junior high friendships, especially among the girls, oh my goodness, where you're best friends forever one day and then you can't stand each other the next. It's not like that. You never have to question where you stand with God. His love is not conditional. It's not fickle. It's not going anywhere, no matter what happens in this earth. The last biblical example I wanted to point out is Hosea and Gomer, if you're familiar with that story. If you've never read through the book of Hosea, oh my goodness, it is a roller coaster of a book. Hosea was this prophet that God called to go marry another woman. He says, delete all your dating apps, I've got the woman for you. Okay, cool. Who is it? You know that girl that sells her body to other men for a living? Yeah, that's her. Really? Yeah. So he goes and marries Gomer, this prostitute. And he shows her love time and time again, yet 
time and time again, she betrays that love and that trust and goes and chases after other men and keeps selling her body to other men to the point where at one point, Hosea literally has to go and buy her back from this guy who's bought her as his slave. And this is what Hosea says about his wife, Gomer. And this is an example of God's love for his people, for Israel and for us. And Hosea says to Gomer, I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, in justice, in love, and in compassion. This type of love seeks the good of the other despite the cost. The literal cost for Hosea to have to go and buy back his own wife. And the cost that God has shown his love for us by giving his own son. And it's the cost that it, that for us to sacrifice our own wants and desires for the benefit of other people. That's the kind of love we're talking about here. So, what is this? How can we maybe summarize all of this? I love what Scott McKnight, the Bible scholar, uh, I've read several of his books. He, he's a fantastic author and thinker. And he has kind of a four-part definition of biblical love. He says, first, love is a covenant. Or translated in light of how God's covenant love works, love is a rugged commitment to another person. I love that idea, a rugged commitment to another person. It's all about commitment first. Number two, love is a rugged commitment to be with that person. This is the principle of presence, time spent with that person. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be committed to you. I'm going to be with you. And number three here, he says, love is a rugged commitment to be with another person as someone who is for that person. This is the principle of advocacy, not just tolerance, but the principle that the other person deeply knows that you are in that person's corner. You've got their back. You're cheering them on. You are their hype man, their wingman. You, you're their right-hand man no matter what. You're through thick and thin, ride or die. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be for you. But number four, Love is a rugged commitment to be with another person as for that person as both of us seek to become what God wants of us. That is Christ-likeness. He says this is the principle of direction. Love entails wanting that person to become God's Christ-like design for that person and for the one who is loving to grow in the same direction. I love that idea that we are growing together in the same direction direction. So summarized like this, love is a rugged commitment to be with someone, to be for someone unto Christ-likeness for as long as it takes. No matter the cost, no matter how long, that's love through thick or thin. And that love can be between husband and wife, between parent and child, between friends, between mentors, between co-workers, that, it can be anything. It's God's type of love towards us, and it's the type of love we need to show for one another. As I'm turning the diamond of this word chesed and looking at it from all these different angles, I couldn't help but think of one critical uh, example of chesed in action. 
Maybe you recognize these folks. Dick and Rick Hoyt, or Richard Hoyt Sr. and Richard Hoyt Jr. Together they formed what, was, what would be known as Team Hoyt. And instead of just like standing up here and lecturing to you about this, I found this amazing video uh, that was highlighting the Hoyt team and their accomplishments and what they went through and what they had to overcome. And to me, this is as good an example of any that I've ever seen of what this idea of faithful, loyal love really looks like. So I have a video. It's, long, it's on the longer side, but I think it's worth it, okay? So let's watch this together, and then I'll come back and finish this out. This is where they go to prove their mettle. Endurance racers from around New England, ready to take on an Olympic distance triathlon. Those who finish will swim a mile, bike 24, and run six more. But one man's got a tougher challenge than the rest. And it's not because he's one of the oldest guys here. It's because Dick Hoyt will pull, pedal, and push his son Rick, who was born without the ability to move or speak. This is how father and son spend their time together, nearly every single weekend, going back 30 years. Dick and Rick Hoyt have completed over 240 triathlons, and on their lazier Sunday afternoons, over 68 marathons, the fastest in a time just half an hour off the world record. Yes, the real world record. They say Dick Hoyt could have been an elite endurance athlete on his own. Dick's not so sure. I just don't have the desire to be out there running by myself. I think it's just something that comes from his body to my body, and it makes us go faster. Are you trying to say that you run faster pushing Rick than if you didn't run with him? Oh, yeah. He, he inspires me and he motivates me. And he's actually the athlete, and he's very competitive. He wants to win. To those who don't know better, it might seem an unlikely pair. The strapping Richard Sr., a retired lieutenant colonel with the Air National Guard, and his motionless son, Richard Jr., born 48 years ago. Rick had been strangled by his own umbilical cord during birth, severely damaging much of his brain. He would never walk or talk or, the doctor said, do anything at all. He wouldn't give you any hope at all? No, he didn't. No hope at all. Just cold, hard facts, he said. And my wife and I, we cried a little bit, but we talked and we said, no, we're not going to put Rick away. going to bring Rick home and bring him up like any other child. All right, guys, almost to the top. So this is how Rick Hoyt was raised, like his father had always planned, like any other boy in Boston, on sports. The doctor said it was all well and good, but we're still sure there was little going on in the silent boy's brain. His parents saw reason to disagree. What did you and your wife know about your boy that the doctors didn't know and didn't see? We could tell by looking in his eyes that when you were talking to him, he was looking right at you and he was taking everything in. It's just that he couldn't answer you and he couldn't get things out. Until a machine was invented that would put Rick to the test. Using a button with his head, the only part of his body he had any control of, 12-year-old Rick would finally get the chance to click out his first words, one letter at a time. And everybody's betting 
whether the first words Rick is ever going to say, or his mom saying it's going to be, hi, mom, me saying it's going to be, hi, dad. Well, the Boston Bruins were going for the Stanley Cup, and the very first words he ever said was, go Bruins. So you knew that he was following sports. 36 years later, Rick Hoyt still uses a version of that same machine. And though it takes hours just to write a few sentences, it gives him something he never had, a voice. When I got my first communicating device, the feeling was joyous. Finally, I could share my opinions with everyone. And it was something young Rick would tell his father soon after that would change everything. In 1977, he learned of a benefit run being set up to help a local athlete who'd been paralyzed in an accident. I wanted to show this person that life goes on and he could still lead a productive life. That is why I turned to my dad and said we have to run in this race. Dick Hoyt, 40 years old and out of shape, had never run more than one mile. No one expected him to push his wheelchair-bound son for five. When we came across the finish line, it's the biggest smile you ever saw in your life. And when we came home from that race, Rick wrote on his computer, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like my disability disappeared. Overnight, Dick and Rick began running every road race New England had to offer. And before too long, the oddball team was leaving quite an impression. First time you saw the Hoyts, what do you remember seeing? I remember seeing... Um, Dick's back. Dave McGillivray was an expert distance runner who'd go on to become head of the Boston Marathon. Impressed, McGillivray challenged Dick Hoyt to upgrade from road races to full marathons. No problem. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Hoyt pushing his son. So McGillivray raised the bar again. Maybe it was just my competitiveness, but just out of nowhere I blurted out, have you ever tried a triathlon? Well, I looked at Dave and I said, Dave, only if I can do it with Rick. So Dick moved to the country, where he trained himself to bike and swim with Rick. That meant learning how to pedal this contraption, using an 80-pound bag of cement in the front seat in place of his son. It was his first time on any bike since age six, and that was the easy part. You really didn't know how to swim at all? No, I, I ain't kidding you. When I jumped in that lake, I couldn't go 10 feet. <laughs> My, I sank. I couldn't tread water or anything else. That was 1985. This was 1989. Hawaii, site of the most grueling endurance race in the world, the Ironman Triathlon. A 2.4-mile ocean swim, followed by 112 miles on a bike, then, for good measure, a full marathon, all under the island sun. The world's best were there, including the guy who put the Hoyts up to this ultimate challenge. I could see them coming from a distance, and as they're getting closer and closer, I can tell how Dick was struggling. But then I look down at Rick. He's dealing with all the elements, too. And it takes a lot of strength to say, Dad, um, I, I want to continue. I want to participate. And it took a little while before that realization hit me. And then I realized how much of an incredible athlete Rick is not just his dad, but Rick truly is. He's also a best friend. Morning, Rick. How you doing? All right, I'm gonna go start the top, okay? With Dick and his wife divorced, it's usually just the guys. It's a relationship of loyalty and trust. Ultimately, all of Rick's relationships are, but this one's different. Got a nice new haircut, huh? That means we're gonna go faster. Yeah. 
Rick and Dick even have their own way of speaking, a guessing game of sorts for when the computer isn't handy. F G H H F. Still, for all Rick's limitations, he was raised to be his own man, which is why he lives alone in his own apartment, helped by part-time caretakers, but fiercely independent. Like any other college grad, yes, it took him nine long years, but Rick managed to become the first ever non-speaking graduate of Boston University. People generally underestimate me due to my physical condition, but I am a person with a brain and intelligence. I am no different than anyone else other than the fact that I will not beat you in a foot race and you will never have to tell me who shut my mouth. Visiting Rick's place in 2005, we learned that he rarely misses an opportunity to have a laugh. Let me ask you something, Rick. Maybe you can type a response. That voice, that synthesized voice that comes out of here, your real voice, I'm assuming, is, is it like a lot sexier than that? Smoky? Sultry? Any of those? <laughs> Were you reacting? <laughs> I guess. I guess. <laughs> Once he starts with the laughing and smiling, <laughs> it's... You never know what he's going to write. <laughs> real, real hot? <laughs> Is that your answer? Your voice would be real hot? <laughs> For Dick, hearing Rick's voice is what's inspired him to keep going, 30 years and counting. Rick can't make very many sounds, but he does this a lot when we're out there competing. It's not like a laugh, it's, it's like he's got a smile on his face and he's just making this noise, you know, this loud noise. Is that the prettiest sound in the whole world? <laughs> That's going to be some sound. Yeah, it really is because you know he's happy and he enjoys himself and he loves to be out there competing. And he's letting you know. And he's with me now. <laughs> it's been five years since we first met the Hoyts, and they've yet to slow down. Dick and Rick still race almost every weekend, usually placing first or second in Dick's age group. Only now, they have even more competition on the course. These days, hundreds of families are pushing their own disabled children in races, inspired by the Hoyts' devotion. Are you ready to ride? <laughs> Huh? You know, I figured eventually people would start doing what we're doing, but I didn't think it would get as big as it is getting. What, what's that like to see? It's great to see because I know how Rick feels when we're out there competing and running. And now this is affecting other families that have children similar to Rick. And they've all got big smiles on their faces when they're out there competing and running. The Hoyts are inspiring families without disabled members, too. In 12 cities across the country, volunteer groups have formed to help disabled athletes who don't have a family member to compete with them. At races in Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, volunteer pushers are paired with athletes of all ages, and they finish as a team. And just last month in Virginia Beach, more than 100 runners pushed 50 riders in a three-mile race, forming the biggest group yet. These are volunteers who want to push disabled kids. That's what's amazing to me. They're not their mother and father or somebody in the family. It's just volunteers who are out there and they want to do this. Over the years, people all over the world have reached out to the Hoyts. Every day they receive more than 200 emails and letters thanking them for their inspiration. This is an email you got um, a couple of years ago. Dear Mr. Hoyt and Ricky, I lost my beloved husband of 25 years four months ago. 
It has been a pain that I cannot describe. Then I saw your video. The day I watched it, I had decided to just end it. And I had everything planned to the last detail. I'm here because of that video. I just wanted you to know that you and Ricky are two of my heroes. Thank you again. The subject heading is, you saved my life. You saved her life. Yeah. Hearing a story like that, it's easy for Dick and Rick to race on. Dick, now 70, says retirement won't happen for two more years after they run their 30th Boston Marathon. But for this father and son, it's doubtful that finish line will be their last. When are you going to know that it's time to stop? Well, I think Rick's going to say, Dad, I've had it, you know, done, or I'm going to say it, or we, something happens, we get injured. All the people in the world are inspiring him to continue running because we've been inspiring them throughout the years. And it's nice to know that he's the one that really started this all back 30 years ago. He's inspiring so many people. He really is, yeah. Yeah. need the tissues after that one, huh? Right? Now, th that was an older video. Um, unfortunately, since then, uh, both have passed away. Rick Sr. Uh, passed away back in 2021. He was 80 years old. Uh, his son, Rick Jr., passed away just earlier this year at the age of 61. Doctors weren't giving him much of a chance of any kind of life. But it's that love that we've been talking about, a love for his, of a father for his son that is a rugged commitment to be with someone, for someone, for as long as it takes. That when true love is shown like that, the world takes notice. And that is a kind of love that will outlast any of us. It's a kind of love that outlasts Rick Jr. and Rick Sr. And it's a kind of love that dare I say, is forever. I think Victor Hugo said it best in his novel Les Miserables, to love another person is to see the face of God. Or as John put it, the opening of his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth, a direct callback to Exodus 34. Jesus was the full embodiment of that love that God has for us and the love that we should have for each other. Jesus would say, love one another as I have loved you. And that is the kind of love that drove him to the cross. That is the kind of love that kept him hanging there with the nails in his hands as he's bleeding out and suffocating, dying the death we should have died to save us so that he could be with us for eternity. That is the kind of love we're talking about today. If you're able and willing, I want to lead us in an exercise that's been going on for literally thousands of years across the centuries. So let's stand together. This is inspiration for one of the songs we sang earlier today. 
But this is Psalm 136. And it's a psalm about God's never-ending, always-enduring chesed, his love for us. And as it's been done throughout the centuries, starting with the, the Jews well before the time of Jesus, all the way through the centuries, I'll, the leader, I will read the words in white, and together the congregation repeats this phrase, his love endures forever, okay? So we'll, let's go through Psalm 136, and that's how we'll wrap up, and then uh, Tyson will lead us in another song. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens, his love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters, his love endures forever. Who made the great lights, his love endures forever. The sun to govern the day, his love endures forever. The moon and stars to govern the night, his love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, his love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them. His love endures forever. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, his love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, his love endures forever. And brought Israel through the midst of it, his love endures forever. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea, his love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, his love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, his love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, his love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, his love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, his love endures forever. And gave their land as an inheritance, his love endures forever. An inheritance to his servant Israel. His love endures forever. He remembered us in our low estate. His love endures forever. And freed us from our enemies. His love endures forever. He gives food to every creature. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. Amen, church. Amen. Let's sing together.